We're reading now in John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19 is our text this morning. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. Uh, mostly we're going to be looking at 13 through 19, but let me, re- let me read it to you in context. Jesus, high priestly prayer. Hear the word of the Lord. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your words. Now they, know now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We're going to concentrate in 13 through 19 uh, this morning. So kids, you're dismissed. We are in the Bible. If you, if you don't have a Bible and you do want to follow along, I would advise you to grab one. I'm going to be talking some verses in chapter uh, 17 um, that uh, I don't have up on the screen, so you might want to grab a Bible. Just quickly, we're in the upper room discourse. Started in chapter 13, five chapters. Jesus just finished having his Passover meal with his disciples. It's Thursday night. Maybe even early Friday morning after midnight. Jesus finished his meal with his disciple. Soon Judas, a friend, the ministry companion, will, will betray him. In fact, the band of soldiers that are probably gathering at this time to come and arrest Jesus, uh, is pro- like I said, they're probably just gathering, getting together, and Jesus is praying. Soon he'll be falsely arrested. Within moments, maybe an hour, Brought on fake charges, found guilty, handed over and to a mock trial, brutally treated, and then crucified. Moments from that. But on the evening before his crucifixion, Jesus loves his disciples. He gathers with them, he teaches them, he lovingly instructs them, he comforts them, he's preparing them for what is about to take place, although I don't think they truly understand what was going on. But he wants them to be somewhat prepared. Soon they will scatter, each to their own home. But our God loves them anyway. And in this last chapter, Jesus stops instructing, comforting, caring, for his disciples in a sense of just verbal communication, and now turns to the Father in prayer. John chapter 17. This is the real Lord's Prayer. 
I said last week that Jesus' prayer is rather circular and thematic. It goes back and forth to several themes. And so far, Pastor Ricky shared with us in the beginning, chapters 17, verses 1 through 5, as the Lord prays for himself, we saw the theme of glory. Chapters 17, verse 1 through 5. Chapters 17, verse 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And we saw the theme, we'll come back to this theme, not only of glory, but sanctification and protection. Chapter 17, verse 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then next week, we'll look at chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus prays for us. But it's this themes, this glory theme, we'll see it again. The sanctification, this protection theme, we'll see over and over again throughout this prayer. It is, we could stay in this prayer for months. There is inexhaustible amount of, of, of not only information, but beauty and glory of God in this passage of Scripture. Puritans love to preach from John 17. Probably more from 17 than any other passage of Scripture. Wealth of information here. So last week, we saw glory, sanctification, protection. This week, I want to turn our attention to another theme, which is joy. Joy and mission, okay? So this is kind of our outline. We didn't hit joy last week with the snowstorm. So we're looking at Jesus' prayer for his disciples, and he prays for their joy. Verse 13, And then we're going to look at the theme of mission, and we'll break it into three parts, and that is the sending of the Savior, the the sending of the saints, that's the children of God, and the sending of the sanctified, which we talked about a little bit last week. We'll talk about some more this week, okay? Jesus is praying before the Father. We hear the innermost sanctum of the Lord's heart as he just lifts up in prayer and begins to pray. And he prays in verse 13, turn there with me, for their joy. But now, which he's been saying over and over again, now I'm coming to you. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to ascend to you. And these things I'm speaking in the world while I'm here, that they, that's the disciples, that's us, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice what it says, my joy. Not the world's joy, not even their own joy. Try to reach in and grab some joy, but my joy. So here's my question as I read this passage. Here's my question. Since Jesus is saying my joy, what kind of joy is on the heart of the Messiah? What kind of joy is in the heart of the king that he wants to share with us? It's not just joy, it's my joy. My joy, I want to give to you my joy. What joy is Jesus talking about? If we're going to have his joy, we have to know. It's interesting, I looked up um, the definition of joy. You know, you can't get joy from a dictionary, right? But at least you're in a meaning, something grasp, grab your head around. This is what joy is. The uh, definition of it. The emotion of great delight caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. A source or keen, excuse me, a source or cause of keen pleasure and delight, something or someone greatly valued and appreciated. Okay? Great delight, something satisfying, a source of delight, something someone values and appreciates. I hope that sounds familiar. So we say, what was the source of something of Jesus of infinite satisfaction or, or valued among all things for Jesus? Glory. It was glory. Remember we said about glory? 
Glory is the, the, the weight, weightiness, the infinite value and worth of God that he has in himself. And we said that the greatest display of the value, the infinite worth of God, proclaimed magnificently, was why? On the cross. The immeasurable value and worth in the character of God on the cross. He is holy, he is just, and he is good, and he is loving and gracious on the cross. So with that in mind, we talk about the joy of the Messiah. We say joy is what, you know, what did he find ultimately satisfyingly greatly valued? We would say glory. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to this verse. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to lay some things out, and then we're going to wrap it up. So just stay with me. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, secondarily, the, 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 the joy that was set before him was certainly the inheritance of the sh- saints, the, 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 the redemption of his sheep. But the primary joy, the main preeminent joy, was his work of obedience and his going back to the Father in glory, seated with him at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what it says. So, we can safely say that it was Jesus, his loving obedience to the Father, that brought him joy. It culminated where? At redemption, which, according to John 17, is a display of the glory of God. Look at John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. My death, burial, and resurrection has come. The hour of redemption has come. Glorify your son, that your son may what? Glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having what? Accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That includes the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So let me die. Let me die well. Let me go to the cross. Let me do it and bring you glory, displaying the infinite worth and value, immeasurable majesty, beauty, and worth of God. Where? On the cross. Look with me, and I just want to build on this, and we'll, 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 I'm going to, we're going to rest with a sentence. We're going to put it all together. Look with me in chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I desire, we're talking about glory, we're talking about obedience, we're talking about a display of the greatness and, 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 and value of God. Father, Jesus says, I desire that they, that's us, they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me, because why? You loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26, I made known to them your word, your name. I will continue to make it known that the love which with you loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay? This love, this union with Christ makes it possible to share his joy because we get to see his glory. John Piper rightly said this, joy was designed by God as the deepest way to reflect his value. Joy is a spontaneous response. Think about this. Joy is a spontaneous response to what you treasure, end quote. Jesus says, these things I speak to them in the world, that their joy may be full. He's not just talking about the prayer of glory, although he is. He's talking about the upper room discourse, the promises, the beauty, the, the revelation of who God is in the gospel. 
Turn with me to chapter 15. We see similar language. John chapter 15. According to John 15, which we'll, we'll, I'll show you in a second, Jesus experiences the greatest joy by abiding in the Father's love and, and doing what he commands, which culminated in the cross. But we see that in John 15, verse 9. As the Father loved me, he's talking now to his disciples, so I have loved you. In the same way that the Father loves the Son, in eternity, Jesus loves you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as what? I keep my Father's commandment and abide in his love. And this is what he says. These things I have spoken to you that what? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See that? Everything I said about abiding in me, being cleansed by me, and by your obedience that flows from, flows from knowing the love that God has for you, produces an abiding, lasting, full joy. Jesus' joy, therefore, like the disciples, which he's praying for in 17, is marked by abiding in the Father's love, marked by obedience to the Father, and Jesus is praying for his followers to, to, to understand and to sense and to know and experience the full measure of my joy, which is grounded upon remaining in the Father's love, continue obedience to Jesus. So let me sum it up. What I believe, how we attain that joy in which Jesus wants to give us in this sentence. When we, the children of God, when we are obediently treasuring and cherishing and relishing in the glory of God, we not only experience his abounding love, but the byproduct of that will be joy. Will be joy. Joy is the instinctive reaction to what we treasure and value. What we treasure and value will show and be a byproduct of joy. All right. Let me show you again. Chapter 11. Jesus finds out Lazarus is sick, remember? And Jesus says, the one whom you love is sick. And Jesus it loves him. His love is all over that text. And what does Jesus do when he, when he finds out Lazarus is sick to show him love? He lets him die. Why? The scripture says, in order that God's glory may be Revealed so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus says, I love you, Mary, Martha, the sisters, and I love you, Lazarus. And I'm about to do something that's going to show you love. And the way I'm going to show you my love is by you seeing my glory, my beauty, my, my incalculable worth. That's the way I'm going to show love. We said that is the highest, best, and most perfect way that love is shown to us is when we see and treasure the glory of God. So we found out in John 11 that love is embracing, trusting, and treasuring God. And the byproduct of that is joy. Loving God, obeying God, trusting God, resting in God, being satisfied in God will produce joy. It did for Jesus. Listen to this passage in Jude 24. Now to him who was able to keep you, now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jesus' own joy in doing the Father's will, abiding in his love, bringing him glory by going to the cross, ascension to heaven, is the very basis on which we come to delight in salvation, have an intimate relationship and knowledge of God, and share in the heartfelt pleasure of obeying the Father. That is the essence of Jesus' own joy in his Father. So if God's glory, his, his, his majesty, his, his endless beauty, his, his worth, his intimate, uh, excuse me, his incalculable value is treasured, and that is what our hearts are pursuing, the outcome and a byproduct will be joy. So that's why I think, you could talk about this in community group, the reason that there have so many joyless Christians because we're trying to be satisfied and, and seeking value and purpose in things that are not God and his glory. And valuing him and, and worshiping him and seeing his infinite beauty. We seek it in other things. But if we could grasp the love that God has for you. If you could know the depth of what he went through to purchase your redemption if we could trust the master and that he knows what he's doing and we follow him that he went to the cross to display and not you know as a father's will to display the glory of god and it's for our good we would be people who are filled with joy and and though and and when that happens i think what jesus is trying to tell these disciples who are confused and discouraged I'm going to send you out, and my joy is going to be in you. They didn't understand all this. All this is not going to really happen until afterwards. But once it comes to be, once they are filled with Christ, once they see who he is and they understand the glory of God, what are they going to be? I'm going to tell you what they're going to be. They're going to be God-glorifying, joy-filled Christ followers. And you say, really? Are you sure? Acts chapter 8. Spirit of God has come and empowers the church. Philip proclaiming Christ in Samaria is preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel. It says in chapter 8, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Persecution had come. Philip went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what Philip was saying. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, remember signs are, 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 are a signpost to, the, to who Christ is, when he saw the signs he did, unclean spirits came out, crying out with a loud voice. Many who were paralyzed and lamed were healed. So there was much joy in the city. They saw the power of God. They, they, they saw the compassion of God healing. They, they saw what God was doing. He got glory. They got joy. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas on first missionary journey in comes to Antioch in Pisidia, chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, that the gospel was for them too, not just for the Jews, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed to eternal life believed, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas headed out to Jerusalem. Missionary journey has been successful, being sent on their way back by the church. They passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in the detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought 
great joy to all the brothers. The gospel of love and grace was proclaimed. People responded in obedience. God got the glory. They got the joy. And all the things that brought joy was things that this world cannot take from us. That the world can't take from us. We're not talking about just being happy all the time in circumstances, but we're talking about an abiding joy, knowing the love of the Father, responding in faith and believing and trusting and pursuing and loving and treasuring God above all earthly treasures. That will bring joy. And that's what we see going on when the church was sent on mission, which brings me beautifully to the next point. See the way I worked that out, huh? Theme of mission. Now, three things. Number one, the sending of the Savior. If you don't understand the sentness of the Savior, you're not going to understand the sentness of the church. Jesus tells us in this prayer over and over again that the Father has sent him. I read yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the day before yesterday, I was looking up in the gospel according to John, seeing how many times it says, just in that gospel alone, it's a very prominent theme that he was sent. I counted over 40 times where it talks about Jesus being sent by the Father. Chapter 5 is loaded. In our text, chapter 17, there's five times that it says it, 3, 8, 18, 23, and 25, that the Father sent the Son. Chapter 3, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Chapter 8, I've given them the words you gave me and they have received them and they come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. This is all in Jesus' prayer, five times. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you have loved me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. Can't miss that. All right, you're going to study any, anything in Scripture. If there's a reoccurring, reoccurring word, it's important, right? The word sent is the Greek word apostolo, where we get the word apostle. Latin, it's the word missio. Some of you have been around me long enough to know that I use the word the missio dei. The imago dei, the missio dei. The imago dei, image and likeness of God. The missio dei is the mission of God. We did a whole series on it, I think eight-part series. It's also where we get the word missionary. It comes from the Latin word missio, sent. It literally means sent ones, or like we like to say sentness. S-E-N-T-N-E-S-S. It's not a word, but it is now. Sentness. Jesus says, I am a man on sentness. I'm a man on missio. I'm on a man on mission. Jesus was not just born into the world. Jesus was sent into the world. The Bible tells us that God loves the world. He's the creator of the world, and he did not just spin it and send it off and visits every once in a while, but he sent his son on mission to Re-undo, or should I say, uh, make everything that's wrong, make it right again. Jesus came forgiving people who need to be reconciled and redeemed. People, uh, Jesus came feeding people and healing people who needed to be restored. He came loving people and caring for people who needed to be renewed. Over and over and over, the Bible The scriptures talk about God's mission of redemption and reconciliation and restoration and finally renewal. 
God is working, actively working in creation to one day be completely whole again. You need to understand that. Jesus came on the scene in Mark chapter 1, in the beginning of Mark. The time is fulfilled. All what's been said about me has come to pass. I've been sent. I'm here. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe in the gospel. Right? The gospel is that a true king has come. He's been sent from heaven in perfect glory, in in shalom, in, in beauty and wholeness to establish a kingdom. The kingdom is the coming of God in Christ who will be crucified for our sins but will inaugurate, listen, an eternal kingdom and provide for us while he's on earth a glimpse of what the kingdom will look like when it finally comes. Sin, injustice, poverty, racism, hatred, murder, all those things are very real and we need rescue. And Jesus comes the first time sent by the Father in vulnerability and weakness to die for our sins, but someday he will come back in strength. And we live in this kingdom that is here, Christ inaugurated, and yet not fully realized. I mentioned this before, like a Polaroid. Some of you don't know what a Polaroid is. We remember, you click the thing, pops out, it's black. And you wait, and it slowly shows the picture you took. It's slowly, but it's coming. When Jesus comes back, everything broken will be fixed. There'll be no more fear. Joy will be permanent. Suffering will be no more. Tears gone. Human race unified. Poverty and justice over. Hunger, disease, death gone. Revelation 20. I see a new heaven and a new earth. And the new city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. God will dwell with them. God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. No more mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. God has not abandoned us. God sent his son to heal, redeem, and restore. And Jesus says, I'm a man on a mission. Do you know that even creation itself is groaning? Romans 8. Waiting to put on a new heaven and a new earth. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of Christ. The earth itself is waiting. And Jesus inaugurates this kingdom. And Jesus in his healing and his love and his his releasing of the captives and dying for sin is the coming of the kingdom, not fully realized yet. And we get a glimpse of what the kingdom is about because King Jesus has come. The Messiah has been sent. Do you know what? When you become a Christian, when you become a Christian, you join him on that mission. When you become a Christian, you join him on that mission. Verse 18. As you sent me, Father, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean the same way. Right? I mean, you didn't, not the same. Jesus is the true king. He has an everlasting kingdom. He's the only one who lived without sin and therefore was able to atone for sin. That's not the way you were sent. But we do... And we have been sent and given authority and responsibility. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Going in his authority and what he's given us to do. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, 
Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why? Look at 21, verse 21, 17, 21. So that we live in such a way that people believe that Christ has been sent. That they may know we are one. The Father, I mean me, I'm in you. They may know that we are, we are together. And look at the end of chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 17. So that the world may believe that you sent me. We're going to talk about oneness and unity next week. It's for the purpose of the glory of God. Right, so this is not an option. Jesus is saying, Father, just as you sent me as a missionary into the world, I'm sending my followers in my name and on my mission as missionaries into the world. Last week, we talked about being sanctified. We talked about being called out of the world. Chapter 17, Jesus introduces it, at least at the beginning. I've manifested your name, the people who gave me, out of the world. We talked about being sanctified, being taken out of the world, set apart from the values and systems of the world that are anti-God and being dedicated to God and truth. And we said that it's a one-time event of being sanctified, but when we're sanctified, there's also a process. So that everything in our life, we talk about being an Olympic star. If that's something you want to be, everything is subservient to that goal, that to which you were set apart for. So you're going to live life, you can decide schools, all the things you do with the centerpiece or the center goal and everything subservient to winning the Olympics. When Christ is your life, everything is subservient, submissive to Christ. And since he's on mission, we are on mission. And even though we do lots of different things, go to work, we have neighbors, we have friends, we're baseball, basketball, whatever we do, everything's subservient to that mission we've been set apart to. So if something hinders it, we dismiss it. If something takes us off the road of living on mission, we let it go. Being a missionary for the gospel is not something that we are to contemplate. It's something we are to respond to. We've been set apart for that purpose. That's what he is about. And that's why here at King's Chapel, we talk about global partners because we are partners with those who serve overseas. A lot of people want to say those are missionaries if you grew up in church. And they have, you know, a, a world globe and they have strings and this is where all our missionaries are. Well, yes and no. What happens sometimes is then we're teaching the church that that's what missionaries do. Every follower of Christ is a missionary. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Whether it's Glenmont or, you know, the Ukraine. So we call them, it's, not, it's not something we could just say, well, I'm not really sure. And I need you to see that. I need you to feel that this morning. That the Missio Dei, the mission of God, is the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, sending his people on mission. The Father sent the Son, the Father and Son sent the Spirit, the Spirit empowers Christians, Acts chapter 1, to declare the good news, demonstrating in love and declaring who Christ is. We are laborers in that cause, just like Jesus. Our mission is to conform ourselves to the pattern of Christ's mission. So as we work for healing and serving our neighbors and loving and caring the poor, proclaiming in word and deed that the kingdom has come, King Jesus is alive and well in his people, in his church. And when we live on mission, demonstrating the gospel in love and good deeds, caring for people, opening our mouths, sharing our hearts, looking and willing to talk about Jesus, talk about all he's done, what he means to you, through that message... The kingdom of God comes through the preaching of God's word. And people start to get healed. 
And I'm not talking about waving a flag and a, a, a handkerchief and send me $50 and I'll, and I'll send you. No, I'm not talking about that kind of healing, although God can heal miraculously. But what I mean is, is that when we're loving people, when, when we're listening to the, to the lonely, when we're, we're clothing the poor, when we're caring for the weak, and looking for every opportunity to declare forgiveness to those in bondage, we are joining God on his mission. Remember, he loves all people, all nations, all tongues. He's inviting everyone to come and respond to the work of the cross, to be forgiven of sins, to, to experience for themselves intimacy with God, love of God, grace of God in their own lives, to live a life of hope, to live a life of, of love and value and purpose. And he invites us. He invites us, God Almighty, Creator, invites us, like a dad take his children to work day, to live our mission with him, loving people, caring for people, sharing Christ with people. And soon, and hopefully, and prayerfully, as we love people well, and I don't mean perfectly, they receive forgiveness, they see the goodness of God, they get a glimpse of what the world was supposed to be when they see the love of Christ in your life, right? So, sending of the saints, excuse me, the sending of the Savior, the sending of the saints, and then we, we must hit the sending of the sanctified. Jesus prays in this prayer, and some of you have heard this before, and some of this is new for you. Jesus prays in this prayer that we stay off two very opposing teams. Opposing not, not only to each other, but opposing to the mission of God. And Jesus prays that we, we, the church, stay off these two teams, okay? Follow me? The one team is called assimilation, or we can say syncretism. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of the world. That's that sanctification. Just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying, if you're not of this world, you will be different than those who do not know Christ, right? Those who belong to and identify with the systems of this world will be different than you. You will be different from them. Otherwise, people will not know that you sent me. I mean, that's how they know. Father, they'll know that you sent me is by them being sanctified and not part of the world. That's, one, that's the process of living on mission. Christians bow down to King Jesus. Join him on the mission means we use money, we use uh, uh, talents and gifts, our approach to marriage, sex, politics, power, careers, material goods, raising children, all those other things. We come from a scriptural point. We are not of the world. We listen and take our orders from King Jesus. Therefore, there will be differences, Right? Jesus praying against a team of assimilation. You're different, right? So there are those people who want to just engage and assimilate into the culture and not be different because they don't want to offend anybody maybe or maybe they're just afraid or, or they have an ego and they don't want to be different. They just want to go with the flow. Jesus is praying against them, against that. Don't do that. You know, if you've never experienced any kind of pressure, any kind of hostility at all, and you've been a Christian a long time, something might be wrong. I do not ask you to take them, verse 15, out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. So they're going to hate you. You're going to be different. I don't want you to assimilate, but Lord, Father, please keep them from the evil one. In other words, assimilating into the culture and, 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 you know, it reminds me of the atheist that does door-to-door evangelism. They knock on the door, and they just stand there. And you're like, and they have nothing to say, right? <laughs> it's just, it's just, they're just there. Because when we 
close our mouths and not been set apart and we just join in and assimilate culture, we're really, we're really ultimately reinterpreting the gospel and that is evil. The, the, their failure of assimilation is they bring to the culture a false gospel of accommodation, not confrontation of the gospel. By seeking to bless people but not calling them to repentance and faith, they may have a wonderful social conscience and they have, may have the morally right way to act, but they're dying and going to hell without Christ. Because morality will not get you there. And Jesus says to them, keep them from the evil one. Don't let them, don't let them assimilate so much that they're, they're not proclaiming the good news. Verse 17, how? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So as we're sanctified and we're different, we have a compass and it's called the scripture. Right? Our worldview comes from the scripture. We, we, we hold to the word of God. It has its final place in our life, the final place in our church. It is the final authority. The word of God becomes the final authority of all matters. It teaches us about sin. It teaches us who we are. It teaches us about salvation. It teaches us about how good and glorious God is. It teaches us how to be forgiven, have a relationship with God. It teaches us that Jesus came into the world, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, triumphant over sin, Satan, and hell. The scriptures teaches that. And all those who receive Christ, the Savior, Lord, and God, will be forgiven of sins, counted righteousness in Christ, that's what the scriptures teach us. We're sanctified by that. But there's a problem. Because then we lean on the other team, and it's called isolation. Right? Look at verse 15 again. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. The team of people think the, the world is bad. I'm just going to lock the door. I don't want to go out there. I've got to disengage with people. And you may say, oh, I would never do that. Well, he will think it through a minute. Kent Hughes, funny, he writes this. This is a quote. He says, it is possible to go womb, womb, to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. Separatist, separatism, isolationist, legalist. That's what the Pharisees were. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from the word separate. Okay, that's where it comes from. See, they separated themselves, but they forgot the mission. They separated themselves, but they forgot the mission and the reason why in which they were separate in the first place. Mark Driscoll says they take the fun out of fun fundamentalism, right? You only hang out with Christians. You only talk to Christians. You only deal with Christians. You only have Christian plumbers and, and, and this. And you only watch movies that have to do with Jesus. You only listen to music that has to do with Jesus. And you create all these rules. Don't go to public school. Don't talk to anybody who goes to public school. Don't talk to anyone who talks to anyone that goes to public school, right? No drums, no guitars. That's of the devil. You know, all that kind of stuff. I don't want the culture. Don't play cards, don't dance, because you know what dancing does. It leads to sex. I, I, only if you're flexible, I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> so we have these rules, separate yourself. And what happens is, is that people think, and isolationists, people think that all the bad people are out there. But if you're really dealing with truth, you find out there's some really bad people here. Right? They see sin as catching a cold. You sneeze, oh, I don't want none of that. But where is sin? In the heart. Out of the heart comes evils, desires, fornication, and greed. So they tend to leave 
and run from all things that are cultural, all the rules that they make in order to say, I'm not going to sin. They're usually wearing a 1975 plaid suit and singing 1400 Sims, you know, but they don't, they don't believe in culture. But Jesus doesn't do that. He, he goes into culture. He makes friends with, with prostitutes and nut jobs and drunkards and wackos. And, and everybody's like, what kind, of, what kind of Bible teacher are you? In fact, you know, the scripture said that they, they, they uh, accused him of being a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of a tax collector, and sinners. And they're all like, what kind of guy hangs out with those people? Of course, the answer is the kind of guy who's seeking and saving the lost. Right? That's the kind of guy. So did Jesus ever sin? No. No. Scripture says that he was tempted in every way, but not with sin, with, yet without sin, excuse me. It is possible to love people who are involved in culture, even doing bad stuff without yourself sinning. Jesus did it. He lived on mission. He went to the parties, but he's not the guy with the lampshade and underwear around his head singing Kumbaya drunk at the end of the day. That's not him. Okay? So we have to have relationships with people, love people, yet be watchful that we ourselves not tempted. We have to watch and make sure that we ourselves are not tempted. Wisdom and discernment is what we need. So there are things in culture, and I've said this before, I'm just going to rehash it again. Many of you were not here. There are things in culture that we redeem, reject, and receive. We reject things in culture that are sinful and immoral. Right? There's no crackheads for Christ. Sorry. No strip dances with a pole that has a scripture verse on it. It's immoral. We reject that. We receive things that are in culture like hospitality, like caring for our environment. We don't hug trees and worship them, but we love our God, but we are good stewards. And we receive that. We receive good music. Don't have to be just Christian music. All kinds of music, all kinds of creativity. If it's done well and is congruent with biblical values, we receive it. We reject things, we receive things, and then we redeem things. You've got to think this through. Things that this world has captured that God made for our good, His glory, our good, the world has hijacked it and used it for evil. Money. Sex. Right? We take money. We don't love money and use people. That's what the world does. We love people and use money to serve and love people. See the difference? We redeem that. We're not against power, prestige, as long as it's being used fairly and rightly and good and mercifully. We redeem family and marriage and children. That's what life, living life as a missionary looks like. We get set apart, but we are engaging in our community. Jesus lived in a culture and ministered to sinners and spoke truth into their lives. So that means we love people in the world. We engage with people who are different from us. But in no way are we to be seduced by it or attracted by the world. We need wisdom and discernment. The mission is not to be out of the world, not to just be in the world, but to be sent with a mission into the world. You understand that? With discernment and wisdom. We don't want to get out. If you have temptations, you avoid that. And that's the tension we live in. 
We don't emulate the world. We don't escape from the world. We engage the world as missionaries. We take the unchanging truth of the gospel and look to incarnate, live it out in the culture for the cause of Christ. Missionaries, believers in Christ, you and I are people who seek to understand people in the culture. Learn questions, the, 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 the hopes, the dreams of people. Know their worldviews so that you can make a connection from their hopes, dreams, and failures to Christ and the truth of the gospel. But we need to love people to do that. We need to care about people to do that. And we are set apart for the purpose of living on mission. Well, how do we do that? Let me end here. Verse 18 and 19. Verse 18, I'm sorry. Now, how do we do that well? How do we, how do we grasp the gospel, which we talked about joy, we talked about being sanctified, not assimilate, not, not isolate, but sent. How do we do that? We remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Verse 19. Dr. Carson, a wonderful New Testament scholar, says the word consecrate in verse 19 harks back to the original word, which means sanctified as well, but harks back to the original use of it in the Old Testament, which means to be set apart or to be cut off. So separated, not only separated from sin, but to be cut off from that way, to not, to, to not be a part of that world. And that's the way in which Jesus is using it. And he says in John 17, 18, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake, whose sake? Our sake, I consecrate myself, I sanctify myself, I set myself apart, I'm cut off, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now we know Jesus is not being sanctified in the sense that we are dealing with sin because he was sinless. He's the Holy One. It harks back to that original etymology of the word which means cut off. Do you know on the cross, Jesus was cut off. What Jesus is saying is, I will make you holy. I will enable you to live on mission to be holy and sanctified and sent, but I need to be cut off myself. And Jesus saying, I I will sanctify, I will consecrate myself. He says, I will take the punishment you deserve. He's pointing to the mission again. Not simply the mission, but how the mission will be accomplished by dying for us, being cut off. Isaiah said it this way. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, cut off from those whom he came to forgive. Despised and rejected by men. John tells us he came to his own, his own whom not. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was born our griefs and he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted by God. He was cut off from the Father too. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off. Out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. Do you see that? On the cross the king of glory. The lord of the universe was cut off. Family, friends and God. He cried out my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me so family let me end with this believe the gospel live out the gospel the gospel is very simple it's we're so filled with pride and selfishness we deserve damnation we should not feel superior to anyone 
You and I should not feel superior to anyone. I, Lou, am desperately wicked, sinful, and rebellious. I do things, I say things, I have unjust motives and unpure motives. I should be separated from God from all eternity. But, but, although I can't reach out to him, but God loves me so deeply that he sent his son into the world to pursue a sinner like me. And even though I wanted nothing to do with him, he dies on the cross, he takes the Father's wrath, so that even though I was and I'm still helpless, he forgives me and he calls me his child. If you believe that, if you believe that, it will show up. You won't be an isolationist because God pursued you. Why would you lock yourself up in a room? Because the gospel is, you run in the other way. And the Lord was sent to rescue you. You would not find yourself, not only not being an isolationist, but you're not going to be assimilation. You're, not gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna recognize that I bow down to King Jesus. That he's my master, he's my king, he's my redeemer, he's the ruler of my life, he gave me life. I've been freed from guilt, shame, and, I, and now I have a message to the world. Man, I've been there. I'm no greater better than you. Will you join him on that mission? Will you see the gospel that he's pursued you and life has changed for you and now everything in your life has been subservient to the King Jesus who gave his life so that you didn't have life? Family, that's the heartbeat of this passage. That's my heartbeat. John 17, verse 18 is one of my favorite verses of all scripture. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Will you go? Will you go? Father, thank you for the rescue. Thank you for the redemption. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin, but sending your Son as a full atonement for our sins. His death, his burial, the empty tomb, his ascension tells us that the sacrifice given is enough. It is finished. All sin has been forgiven. Father, we pray with joy that we partake, that we may partake in the mission that you're on. Loving people, caring for people, listening to people, and asking you, Lord, to empower us to open our mouths and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. May we never stop until the kingdom has come in its completion for your glory and our joy.